This is Running on Fumes, an FC Belvedere Oasis pod. Brought to you by Clorox, the official performance drink of FC Belvedere Oasis. More than often I drive so much it is... Welcome to another episode of America's Finest Rest Stop Soccer Club podcast, Running on Fumes. Coming to you live from the... Or live on Memorex from the virtual Highbury and wherever you can find beverages. As always, we remind you to tip your bartenders, uh, Joe-Katz-16. Peter, how do you spell Joe? You spell Joe by actually stopping by the Highbury now. They've become an open beer depot. So between uh, 10 a.m. and 9 p.m. daily, you can just drive down to... 2130 South uh, KK in Bayview and buy your beer and tip generously uh, that will be received by Joe, J-O-E, Katz, K-A-T-Z at the Highbury. Excellent. And if you're not a Milwaukeean, if you're uh, here in in Madison, you can also tip your bartenders at tipyourserver.org slash MSN. Always a good idea to do that. Uh, Also, just a reminder, you should if you're listening to this podcast and you don't already have your uh, your virtual F Forward Madison versus uh, COVID ticket, you should definitely get one. And if you are one of the folks on the uh, other podcasts that we do, uh, you should uh, definitely reach out and uh, and uh, pay it forward if you can. Uh, if we have uh, bought you a, a match day ticket as a thank you for appearing on our on our podcast. Uh, as always, Matt. that voice right there a- is the Jeeves to my Wooster, Dan Fallon. Dan, what is it you're dying to say? <laughs> well, I was just going to say, we haven't made the announcement today for who's the third member of our hashtag Match Day 18, and I wanted to say it's our illustrious guest, Mr. Peter Wilt. Uh, I figured today would be a great day to announce him as the third member of our team, uh, since this has become the... the uh, I don't, I don't call days of the week by their days anymore. This is just Peter Wilt day. Um, much like if I bump into people on my runs, I then put it into my Strava thing as the, the run where I saw Scott Sala or the run where I saw Tony Thornton um, to just remind myself that, you know, time is a man-made concept. So welcome to the team, Peter. Um, we're glad. Thank to have- you. I, I'm honored to be part of the team and honored to have uh, my own day in your, your life. You know, I've proposed, I think I've told you this before, Dan, that I think the, uh, what, what are we living in? Is it the Gregorian calendar? Well, what is this kind of uh, calendar? Is it, is it the Gregorian or is it the Julian calendar? Let's go with the uh, calendar of Jesse Marsh. It, we're all living in his world. <laughs> Anyways, I've suggested before that we change this calendar. Instead of a calendar with 52 weeks of seven days each, five weekdays, two weekends each week. I suggest that we have fewer weeks, I think it comes out to about 43, of eight days each. Now hear me out. With those eight days, we have five weekdays that most people would work, Monday to Friday, but then we'd have an added weekend day, a Saturday, a Sunday, and a Peter day. (laughs) I want to get my name in there somehow. Well, you came up with the idea. Yeah, why not? So some people might say, oh, sure, that's all well and good for those who like to 
live and frolic and have fun and games, but what about um, the working world? We need to keep progress going. The truth is we've become quite a service-oriented lifestyle. So by having an extra weekend, I think that might offset the loss of productivity from the Monday to Friday type work. We can drink more is what you're getting at there. We have, we <laughs> have three guilt. nights of drinking without it's having to work the next day. the same amount of drinking, just less guilt. Uh, perfect. Perfect. I was well, just thinking, think- you know, the last time somebody redid the calendar uh, were the French, the French Revolutionary calendar. And, uh, you know. Uh, well, I'm just also thinking about this from a footballing standpoint. I mean, I'm reading um, the book about the Premier League right now, uh, something the club or the greatest club, or I can't remember what it's called. By, uh, this is this is Dan's specialty <laughs> right here on the podcast, by the way, Peter, is I'm doing this thing or I'm thinking about this thing. Don't remember the name of it, but it, it's fine. You know, speaks to the planning we do around this podcast. But imagine another full day of being able to show soccer matches uh that would generate a lot more revenue that you could spread out and bigger tv contracts and more advertising dollars it's essentially 42 more uh weekend dates uh, but i would then propose all these monday holidays we have for memorial day labor day fourth of july we we just build in it we we don't get greedy and 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 take a fourth four-day weekend so maybe senator johnson is going to be against this (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> he may be he's against anything that makes sense he's against <laughs> that sounds so like that, that's my idea yeah oh the other thing i wanted to mention was on um, the idea of the may 22nd virtual game the match for madison uh, which i did get my tickets uh, for that one I, I saw forward madison put out a, a, a map recently showing which states have bought and which ones haven't. Are those interesting? 27 states as of uh, Thursday morning had bought, and I guilted Indiana into buying tickets. So <laughs> that's my claim to fame today. By the way, Dan, the, the, the book you were thinking of was, in fact, titled The Club, How the English Premier League Became the Wildest, Richest, Most Disruptive Force in Sports. Good, good book. I actually read it, uh, you know, and another good one about the history of the Premier League that if, if people haven't picked up, that's pretty solid. The Game of Our Lives. Uh, really recommend that as well if you're interested in kind of how the Premier League came about, the origin story of all of that. And, and that. Uh, speaking of that, uh, the, the voice that you've heard, the, the, revolu- the, the uh, you know, uh, Robespierre of this podcast, the Robespierre of, of American soccer, of the calendar here in the United States, also known as the Willy Wonka, Che Guevara, Johnny Appleseed, Doc Brown, Ted Kaczynski, and Mr. Peabody of American Soccer. Now adding the Robespierre, Mr. Peter Wilty is also the sporting director of FC Belvedere Oasis. Today was the last day you could buy your, your jerseys. He is also the inventor of Schlapst. Uh, Schlaps Fest was held at Lefts uh, there in, in uh, Wauwatosa, correct? And now Schlapp's Fest was actually held at the Highbury. Uh, Left's Lucky Town in Wauwatosa sponsored a month-long promotion uh, several years ago where if you drank enough Schlapp's during a particular month, you got entered into a contest to win one of 30 Schlapp's Snuggies that they gave away. 
And uh, I was apparently a winner because I'm actually sporting my Schlapps beer Snuggie today. I was wondering if that's why you refer to me as Robes Pierre, because Pierre oh. is French for Peter, <laughs> and Robe is French for Snuggie. If there's one thing we like, it's a pun. If, we, if there's one thing we like even more, it's a bilingual pop pun. So... <laughs> Yes, I didn't think of that, but yes, yes. I'm and by and by we, he means Keith. Yeah, uh, I mean the royal we, the royal we, me, the king and God. Uh, also, I think I, might st- I think I might start taking the cowboy Neil approach and just say I'm just a contributor here. I'm not actually a host on this podcast. <laughs> well, you know, Neil does more work. You know, he prepares those Poshmark segments very, very much in depth. His work is mostly related to selling other people's clothing secondhand, but yeah. it is hard work. So I give him yeah. I give him credit for that. He, a lot of a lot of trips to the post office, I imagine, which is like <laughs> around the corner from where he lives. Uh, I did see, I did by the way pick up some some cowboy Neil gear, which I'm now wearing. So there you go, uh, Peter. Uh, what else What else is going on? How's the uh, How's the 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 um, basement coming along? How far are you? And have you moved on to the attic? <laughs> we're in the final touches of the basement. I'd say about 90 to 95% done. This was champagne bottle week. I uh, uncovered close to two dozen champagne bottles that are remnants of celebrations from various uh, championships. Uh, I, I, I did want to note that I think only four were actual champagne bottles. <laughs> and only, uh, only in the most generous definition am I going to let you pass cold duck from Andre office champagne. <laughs> I was, I was looking very closely for this, for if the C was actually a Z for champagne. <laughs> well, some of those teams I worked with were on budgets, but, but Peter, what I did notice was that actually maybe the, well, Keith will probably tell me I'm wrong, but the bottle of Vouve Clicquot, that was when you were in NASL and that might've been the nicest bottle that was in, in the group. Hence the reason the NASL is no longer <laughs> <laughs> blowing their budget on high-priced yeah. uh, champagne. High co- and, you know, obligatory high-class uh, cocaine, you know, that's the other mention that we have to get in. <laughs> they got the good drugs in the NASL. That's, that's what it came down to. Uh, so, but- yeah, still in the basement, but at the, the end of it and uh, still uncovering some, some pretty neat stuff. Well, one of the, one like of the things, Peter, what are, like, what kind of went, I'm curious, like what went through your mind as you were looking at those bottles and thinking about the people that you had been with when you celebrated? Yeah. Um, thinking about the, the game itself, you know, thinking about the game it represented. Um, well, I found the champagne bottle uh, that we discussed uh, the other week where I shot Sunil Gulati. That one was, was in the collection. Are there I any other the that'll be used? Get the prints off of that. Scrub the prints off of that. <laughs> I was going to say, are there any other that'll be used as evidence in a forthcoming criminal proceeding? That's probably the only one like okay. that. Uh, another one I liked was the Open Cup one from Giants Stadium. It was the Fire's third Open Cup win. That one was over the Metro Stars. Because I remember holding that off and opening that champagne bottle. Uh, We were in the locker room. We defeated the Metro Stars 1-0. It was the same day, 2003, as the Chicago Cubs-Florida Marlins game seven. So the game after the Bartman game. And uh, Ron Stern, who's our team administrator, and I uh, are, are both big White Sox fans and 
you're from Chicago, that by definition means you're an anti-Cub fan. So we were rooting hard for the Florida Marlins. And Ron and I were in the locker room while all the players are popping the champagne, pouring the champagne over each other's heads. But we held on to our champagne bottles unopened until the final score of the Marlins-Cubs game. (laughs) And when the Cubs were officially eliminated, then we popped that champagne cork and dumped it over each other. That's that's fantastic. Is there one bottle that that kind of stands out to you as the your favorite of all those? Well, this the super sentimental one is uh, the White Sox World Series one from two thousand five. I attended games one and two in Chicago, and that was wonderful. But games three and four were in Houston, and uh, for game four, um, I surprised my dad, and I went home and uh, to his home in McHenry, and I brought a, a pizza, a six pack of beer, and a bottle of champagne. You know, he at the time, I mean, he's since passed, but uh, he would have been uh, 79 years old. And in his whole life, the White Sox had never won a World Series, which is incredible. And he grew up on the south side of Chicago. And so I watched the game with him. Uh, White Sox led one nothing uh, late in the game. I think Houston got a couple of runners on base and he was so panicky he said, turn it off, turn it off. I can't watch it anymore. <laughs> like, Man, we're up three games to nothing. Even if we blow it, there's always tomorrow. <laughs> so I convinced him to watch the whole thing. And we, of course, held on and won. And uh, we, we celebrated with that bottle of, of champagne. We didn't pour it over each other. I think mom would have been upset that she'd have to clean up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sticky on the but, floor. Uh, that, that, actually- that one is probably... Um, uh, the most sentimental one, uh, the, the most joyous, and that might come as a surprise to people, but the 1990-91 Chicago Power uh, regular season championship one, uh, and I think it's the most joyous because it was the first time I'd ever been working for a team that won anything. Uh, it was in Canton, Ohio. Dan, you're familiar with the Canton Memorial Civic Center. I am. The, the, the beautiful locker room, um, still have photos of uh, Larry Sunderland, Mark Berry, and myself. Uh, we had all come from Milwaukee earlier in the year. We had been with the Wave and uh, moved on to uh, the Chicago Power and to have won that regular season championship uh, in dramatic fashion, too, by the way. It was in overtime. I think Batata, the former Chicago Sting star, the Brazilian and now Chicago Soccer's FC coach, uh, scored the game winner. And so it was, it was thrilling, you know, the golden goal. Um, I still think outdoor soccer should go back to golden goal for uh, overtime matches. But then you're, yeah, but if you do that, you'd kill one of my all time favorite matches ever. The semifinal of the 1982 world cup, France versus West Germany, where one, one tie in regulation, France scores two goals and then Germany in like the 113th and 117th minute on a hot Seville night in the middle of July, end up equalizing, tying it up 3-3, and uh, then winning PKs. And I was listening to another podcast where they were talking about that match, and that's the match where uh, Schumacher comes out of the goal and absolutely levels Batiston from from France. And uh, for a long time in France, they did a poll of least favorite Germans, and number one was Schumacher, and number two was Hitler. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but that, that match was – and I kind of liked the whole 30 minutes rather than golden goal. Um, the contrarian would say, in my scenario, the greatest game in the world you just described would have been greater because of 
instead of being decided by penalty kicks, it would have been decided by the excitement of a live action, full team against team, golden goal. Uh, the contrarian would say the French prefer the existential angst of losing on penalty kicks. <laughs> Hitler's uh, number two. Hitler's I'm number gonna, two. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna side with Peter on this one. I'm a big fan of the golden goal, and uh, also just mention that I I had the distinct honor of participating in a champagne event with Peter at the old Nomad in Madison when um, his beloved Fulham. Uh, football club was promoted uh, the morning that Liverpool lost the Champions League to Real Madrid. And I shared at least one, possibly two glasses of champagne with Peter. And perhaps I jinxed Liverpool by uh, imbibing in celebratory Andre champagne <laughs> before before the match kicked off. So uh, I thought you just went with, uh, with, with Highlight. High Life, uh, the champagne of bottled beers. I thought that's what you went with. It- did she have celebrating? Jesse might have had uh, champagne for us. I think she might have had it. Yeah. No. Yeah. You had two bottles. I think that you had down, put down on the floor, and I think took out with you, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And I did not smuggle those in. I actually paid. Both <laughs> <laughs> I uh, from that day, the air conditioning wasn't working in there, and it was quite warm. I was I was down at the Highbury, Peter, that day, and uh, we did uh, eleven shots that morning for each of the uh, Liverpool starters. We we didn't do them all. I didn't do all eleven, but there were eleven of us, and we split up the starting eleven and did, you know, a four three three of shots that morning. Who got who got Loris Carius? <sighs> let's not let's not pick <laughs> at that particular wound again, shall we? Outside league talk. Yeah. Uh, on a, on an outside talk, uh, actually kind of off the topic, Bill Veck, you mentioned him in, in one of your, your, your columns. And for any fan of the White Sox, he's kind of a big deal, uh, historically important in, in baseball because he was the, uh, uh, owner manager who brought, uh, first African-American player into the American league. Um, but also sent up a, a, uh, a midget to bat, uh, did disco demolition night. Um, was that something that you, you, because he didn't take over the White Sox until the 60s, didn't he? Well, he did it twice. So 1959, the year they won the pennant. So uh, he takes uh, credit for that. Um, he also takes blame for disbanding that team, essentially by trading away all of their stars. Uh, but then he came back in 1976 and saved them from moving to Seattle where they were uh, going to go. And, uh, and that was when I got to know him because I was in high school at that point. And um, I, we developed actually a pen pal relationship because I wrote him a letter as any angry sports fan might do when something bad happens to the team. In this case, it was um, Bill Vec hiring a former Cub, Don Kessinger's the manager. And I was, I was livid. Uh, and I was shocked when Vec actually wrote, wrote me back. And so we ended up having a pen pal relationship. I mean, not a lot, maybe three or four letters each way, but I was impressed every time he wrote back. And it, it convinced me that if I'm ever in a situation where I, I could um, respond to fans, I would. And it, it, it's, uh, it played a big part, I think, in my career and, acting the way I do with the public. And Peter, you were kind of one of the, I mean, you know, 
I don't know how much everyone knows about this, but you were kind of an early adopter of uh, kind of chat rooms and those kinds of things with the Chicago fire. And so that seems to kind of grow out of this, what you're talking about here. Tell people a little bit about how that all came about and how that was really unique uh, at the time. Well, big soccer is where it blew up. Uh, that is a, a soccer forum. It's still around, but it had a much bigger place in soccer discussion in the late 90s and the first decade of this century. And I, I just answered questions. You need to tell the kids about dial-up internet at this point. And... <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and it, it gave me the opportunity to clarify actions and decisions by the front office and uh, and, and just inform the, the hardcore fans, because not all the fans were on big soccer. It's kind of, it was kind of Reddit at the time, I guess. Reddit for soccer. And it gave me an opportunity to hear the, from the fans, understand their likes and dislikes, and kind of defend what we were doing. Uh, and it, it was really helpful uh, throughout uh, my stay in Chicago. And, and sort of related to that, was anybody else doing that in MLS? Or did MLS sort of approach things with more of a, you know, distancing relationship from the fans? For the most part, they didn't. Occasionally, and I think because I had some success with it, um, other executives, either in the league office or with teams, would try to do similar things and respond. But it's tricky, and it's not as easy as it may sound. And some of the folks that got on there ended up being ambushed um, for fair or not. And uh, if you make the mistake of thinking you're smarter than the fans or trying to deceive them or not being fully transparent, um, it can come back to bite you. So uh, very few other executives have done that. I mean, it's I, not to compare myself, but Mark Cuban in, in Dallas uh, has done a brilliant job of that, the owner of the Mavericks, as really being engaging with uh, the fans and listening to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, got nice towels in the locker room because he listened to his players and they wanted nicer towels. I remember, I just remember that as like one of the, the things that like he, he upgraded their towel budget. Um, but I, I was curious as well as, you know, I think one of the things that you see, this openness obviously came from Bill Vec, but don't you think it's also a valuable way that, um, you know, smaller soccer clubs in the United States can set themselves apart is that openness and that willingness? Yeah, the transparency is important. Uh, I think Dennis Crowley has done a great job of it with the Kingston Stockade in the NPSL. Um, Minneapolis SC has uh, also done a, a very good job. Uh, and I, I think there's more and more uh, teams. You know, Detroit City does a good job of it. And a lot of the USL teams, I think Ford Madison, when we were there, not just myself, but, um, you know, Vern and Connor and in Cuba, um, they, they do a great job with it. Um, New Mexico United, really probably the, you know, the shining star in lower division soccer in America right now, is very uh, transparent. Um, uh, their owner, Peter, has done a, a great job of, being accessible. I think that's a big part of it. You want to be accessible, whether it's in reality when you're walking around the stadium on game day um, or um, virtually online and, you know, let the fans know that you're there and uh, available if they've got 
uh, a complaint to share or uh, kudos to give. Well, and it sounds like Peter, what you talked about too, I think the most important thing, you know, the fans aren't going to agree with every decision that you make and they're not going to understand, you know, and there's probably going to be some things that you just can't always just say, this is why we're doing this. But like, you know, just being as open and as honest as you possibly can and giving as much context for decisions that are made. I think people, you know, listen, there's going to be a, a, a minority of fans who are never going to give you an inch and are going to, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're just pains in the ass, but <laughs> for the majority of fans, you know, they, they understand. They usually have podcasts, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> they usually do have podcasts. I mean, right before you jumped on Peter, I was joking that I saw somebody tweet today that, uh, about the Bundesliga coming back and saying, if you think this is anything other than about money, you're crazy. And I said, well, yeah, I think everybody knows that. But but the unintended consequence of the Bundesliga is that it brings a lot of joy to people's lives. So I think most human beings realize this is a business that has to make money to exist. But at the same time, they have a deep personal connection to it. And all they want to know is why you're doing what you're doing and and you know how is this furthering the club? So yeah, uh, health versus wealth. Uh, yeah. I was watching the George W. Bush um, documentary, the two-parter, uh, the other day on PBS. I think it's American Experience, and I, I, I thought it was interesting. The, the stepping stone for him uh, to really to get to the governor position and then the president was owning the Texas Rangers. And they had a short segment on there showing how he improved his popularity and essentially his brand by becoming a fan's owner in Texas. They made the point of saying that instead of watching the games from a suite where the owners normally do, he uh, watched the games from the box seats right out in the open uh, with the fans. He mingled with them. He was available for them. And they said that's part of how he created an image. And a lot of it is just innately W. I mean, it's who he is. He's a guy that you want to have a beer with. and um, Not alcoholic. In his case. God, if we could have have destroyed that goddamn myth. Oh, the last 20 years. (laughs) Yeah, they also talked about that. It was just a few days before the election when his DUI came out. Yeah. And they thought that was going to... Uh, sabotage his election. Well, some that's kids. Did. That's child's play these days. Oh, <laughs> it has gone south, uh, so to speak. So yeah, yeah. Being able to interact with the public um, is is important. And, and so that that brings up, you know, when obviously, you know, we, you mentioned wealth versus health, but as you're, you know. In the case of like starting, and we talked about it a little bit last time, um, and a, a guy, you know, and it came up in, in context of the Chicago Red Stars, and I think you'd say Arnhem does this quite a bit as well, mingles and, and hangs out with the fans and does all that. But what does that go into as you're starting a club and looking for investors? Does that play into it? Do you look at the, you know, personality of who's going to be in the ownership group and, you know, looking for those kind of people? Or are you just like, can you write me a check? <laughs> There's all sorts of dynamics. So uh, yeah, absolutely, I think in any group you're putting together, including an ownership group, I think it is important that um, the personalities, the values is probably a better uh, term. The values are aligned. And um, you know, in, in the Red Stars case, 
I, I think we had a very good group of owners that had similar values and critically important there was uh, aligned expectations. And, you know, when you're selling interest in a sports team, especially a soccer team in America, it's so important that you're realistic or even you know, conservative or pessimistic about what the financial uh, expectations are because the track record for professional soccer financially in this country is not good. And if you're, you know, selling a bill of goods and telling potential investors that you think this thing's going to pay dividends annually, <laughs> um, they're going to be sadly mistaken in most cases. So you need to show them, you know, under promise and over deliver mm -hmm. and, and get people like that involved so that if they all have an understanding that, hey, if we do really well financially, uh, we're exceeding our expectations. If we can manage the investment level we have to put into this and develop the valuation over time and provide a good community service and, and have some fun at the same time and everyone is on that page, then I think you'll have a good group of people. They're not all gonna be alike. They're not gonna have the same ideas. That's never gonna happen. But there's a few important pillars that it's important that they're on board with. You know, in the case of Milwaukee, for instance, when you came after being with the, you know, with the fire, you were, you, did you come up and did you have somebody that was, you know, looking for you to put together an ownership group? Was there a key owner? Or how does that generally work? I don't think any two cases are identical. In that case, with Milwaukee MLS, we had uh, four um, small investors that were looking for a major investor. Uh, Marty Greenberg was kind of organizing it. He's a, a sports attorney in, uh, in uh, Milwaukee. And we had uh, him and a couple others, uh, a few others, actually three others, uh, some a couple doctors, and we um, went out pitching uh, various high net worth folks uh, who we thought would have an interest in owning, be the lead investor of a professional soccer team uh, because of either their community interest or their sporting interest. And in that case, you know, we, you know, we pitched it to dozens of and dozens of, and in Milwaukee's not a market that has a long list of high net worth individuals uh, that can afford something like a major league soccer team. Uh, but we did pitch, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of folks. And uh, we did have uh, an investor that was willing to be the lead investor. And we thought that would be it. But our stadium uh, part of the equation, which we thought would be the easier one, uh, hit a hit a brick wall, and we weren't able uh, to get that done. Unfortunately, was that was that partially because of uh, sort of the fallout from Miller Park that you couldn't find, you know, sort of the public private financing for that? Was it anything else that happened? I think it was local politics. I think it was um, some leaders in the community that feared soccer would affect uh, their own properties and. Uh, didn't want uh, Major League Soccer to dilute uh, the other sports in town. Uh, because, you know, and I'm kind of curious, and I, I think this has come up in the past, but uh, Dan, welcome back. I was carrying the podcast all on my own there. 
Uh, I didn't even notice you were gone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a contributor, Peter. I'm not a host. Oh, Jesus. Um, I think uh, that was the. Uh, I think that was the five uh, G chemtrails were coming down to try and control my brain, uh, and so I, I lost internet connection there. But I am back. Did you get your? Did you go and and get your tinfoil helmet? And now you're back. I, and I put on my Dejan Lovren jersey. Ah, excellent, excellent. Uh, so you know, one of the things that we've talked about with you and then we had, you know, in the, in the past is that you had these old line cities like St. Louis and Milwaukee and, and Detroit that were like big hubs of American soccer. And now, you know, none of them have an MLS team. Uh, St. Louis is in, in the rumor mill. Um, but they're beyond uh, rumors. They're in, No, they're confirmed. Well, uh, you know, they haven't put a team out on the pitch yet. I mean, it's like <laughs> everybody's convinced that we're going to have this FC Miami deal. <laughs> I haven't seen a team on the pitch. Listen to this guy. Yeah, I haven't seen a team on the pitch. Um, but uh, I'm you know, kind of, now that you mention it, the Ch- I haven't seen the Chicago Fire play any home games this year either. No, nope. do they really have a team in Chicago? Uh, I haven't seen you know, any. I've only I haven't seen any. I'm not convinced of this Soldier Field thing. <laughs> That's I'm just you know putting it out there. I'm putting it out there. That is that is the spaceship that we will all be uh, taking to fly to to Mars. <laughs> yeah, the spaceship <laughs> to, to that finally is, leave this low world behind. Soldier Field. Um, but why? You know, why have we not seen those cities get to be MLS teams? Um, well, and could I ask maybe just a slightly different question? That's the same question. Do you think some of that history holds them back? Is there a is there any sort of infighting amongst those groups of people who have been um, kind of, you know, leading the charge for soccer in those communities that then have a tough, tough time coming together around one central idea or one central team? I suppose it could contribute to it, but I think each market has its own story. And, you know, I think, you know, St. Louis as Dan and I have noted have overcome that challenge and they are getting an MLS team and they are getting a new stadium. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> don't believe um, it Cincinnati would be another market I think that could be thrown into that description and of course uh, they've gotten their team um, uh, Detroit you can argue they have a team it's just not an MLS um, you know Cleveland is another one that can the be the Detroit fans would definitely argue with you on basically any point even when you're agreeing with them I think <laughs> uh <laughs> Milwaukee and then I'd say Baltimore is another one where uh, another factor is the success of the indoor teams. I think the Milwaukee Waves' success and the Baltimore Blast success have almost discouraged uh, others from trying to uh, take them on with it with an outdoor team. Uh, and that may have been more, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s. I think that uh, thinking has, has gone by the wayside. And I think you'll see pro teams outdoor teams in Milwaukee and Baltimore in the next few years. What about, you know, the sort of underlying setup of, of cities like Detroit of, you know, Milwaukee, uh, those are cities, St. Louis as well, that had tremendous white flight and they became, you know, very suburban cities. Um, and I'm just curious as to, you know, to what extent does the infrastructure of the cities themselves play into that for, you know, a variety of reasons, you know, the, 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 the cities are more spread out geographically. Well, certainly the success in recent years of MLS teams with downtown urban stadiums 
that have a vibrant nightlife, restaurants, shopping districts uh, play well for an outdoor soccer team to be in those areas. So if you're lacking that, um, that's going to make it uh, difficult. I think people have pointed at Kansas City as a market that has uh, taken you know their outdoor soccer to the suburbs, and it's actually worked well. Um, so you know it's a, an, there's you know different horses for different courses, um, but am I mixing my metaphors enough there? Uh, you know, just put them, put them in the chop o We're fine. Uh, the the so, slap chop. <laughs> but I think in Milwaukee and, and, and St. Louis, because we, we keep using those examples, uh, their downtowns now are, are excellent and, uh, and suitable for downtown stadiums. And when those stadiums are built downtown in St. Louis and Milwaukee, uh, eventually, then um, soccer will be successful there. But there's a fair amount of suburban racism in, in Milwaukee where people kind of cringe at the idea of going into the city, don't they? Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Uh, and among people in the suburbs, uh, there's probably a good amount of that. Uh, but at the same time, the Milwaukee Bucks seem to do okay. They are helped by perhaps the greatest basketball player on the planet. I mean, that usually fixes a lot of problems. I mean, so if Lionel Messi comes to play in Milwaukee, we'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, you know, the United Center was not a great neighborhood uh, when Jordan was playing there. Still not a great neighborhood, you know, and, and not a lot of people are going there now for the Bulls. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, you're absolutely right. There, there's, uh, there are suburbanites in Milwaukee that refuse to go downtown um, because they think it's a, a bad neighborhood uh, and they're afraid to go there. I think it's, I, I hope it's a minority, um, but it exists. It's a shame that it does uh, because downtown Milwaukee is actually a, a vibrant, uh, diverse place. Part of my, I, not to belabor this point, but I think there's people that live in suburban Madison who feel the same way about downtown Madison, which, you know, I find completely unhinged from reality. But I mean, I think there's just, you're going to have that anywhere where there's a kind of an urban center to an area. Um, but I think a lot of people will, you know, they'll give it a try. And as long as they have a good experience and Peter, I remember in the early days of forward Madison talking about this, I remember your big push on that first game was like parking, getting people in and out, making sure that they had, a great seamless experience and then they'll come back. Um, now you couldn't have predicted five inches of snow and a complete shit show. Um, but, um, but I, I do think there are people, there are people who just aren't going to go. And then there are people who are like, well, maybe I'll go. And as long as they have a good experience, um, and this is not me. Uh, I'm not apologizing for casual racism here either. I'm just saying, I think people will give things a chance and then see if they want to go back and check it out again. Yeah, convenience to getting places and perception on the places is a critical aspect of it. And you'll have different versions of that in any market. In Madison, you have a west side, east side dynamic going on. Uh, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, people that live in St. Paul are very willing to go to Minneapolis for cultural events, sporting events. But the opposite's not true. A lot of Minneapolis people think there's nothing of any value that will get them to cross the Mississippi River eastbound. 
Um, you know, San Francisco and Oakland, there's a similar dynamic. Uh, you know, north side of Chicago, south side of Chicago, there's this elitism. Um, in some markets, in some people, it's racism. Uh, in, in, in some places, it's more, I'd say, elitism. Well, and, you know, part of my uh, thinking about this is from my experience living in Philadelphia, where, you know, they, they situated that stadium. It's a beautiful stadium, but it's not in a, you know, where you might expect soccer fans to go. Um, and it's an inconvenient location as well, um, you know, where it is. Um, you know, I think basically the whole of Philadelphia is an inconvenient location. So that's a separate, you know, sort of conversation. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's one of the, the concerns, you know, you look at the Red Bulls, right? And what's been the knock on the Red Bulls? They're in Harrison. They're not in New York City. They're, sub- they're the New Jersey team. They're not the New York team. And so I think, you know, in, you know, specifically speaking of the kind of Milwaukee stadium concept and getting teams and making them successful, I think people don't always think of all these factors that go into it. And, and that it's You're maybe right. more... But in, in those larger markets, those teams need to create their own market. Maybe it's a micro market. You know, if you go, yeah, it will, people in Manhattan or Brooklyn um, go out to... Uh, Harrison, not in the numbers they need to survive. So it's about making the people in New Jersey feel emotionally connected to the team and wanting to support them. And, you know, same thing when the fire moved out to Bridgeview. Yeah, it's difficult for the northern suburbs of Chicago to get to Bridgeview. Uh, If you don't have a car, public transportation isn't convenient to get from the north side of Chicago out to Bridgeview. But there's millions of people within five miles of uh, Bridgeview. And if uh, the fire would have done a a better job connecting to the communities around them that could access uh, uh, Toyota Park and SeatGeek Stadium, they would have been successful there. Well, and I think this also speaks to a certain cultural blindness that we have when we think about who watches soccer in this country and who goes to matches. I would imagine, you know, in Bridgeview, there's, you know, people that are waiting to have, you know, a connection to these major league soccer teams. And, but the, the, the folks in charge of those teams look a lot like you, me and Dan, and they're thinking of, you know, your standard suburban white fan. Right. And so I'm curious as to how you've, you know, how that, that problem gets worked to overcome. And, and, you know, in, in Milwaukee, significant communities, I think that would really rally to a soccer team that may not, be being reached out to in the same ways. It, it's interesting. I'm scheduled tomorrow to talk to the VP of marketing from the Philadelphia Union. So I'll ask him those questions and how they're attacking it. Uh, a week or two ago, I was speaking to the marketing folks at Queensboro FC, the uh, soon-to-be new USL championship in, in Queens. And the three guys I talked to were all white men, young adult white men. And the Queen's market is not 2 million young adult white men. It's probably the most diverse market in the world, if, if not yes. the country. And uh, that's not to say that those three guys can't be successful. What it says is they have to be able to understand the market that they're, they're pitching, that they're trying to connect with. And have the team connect with that market in a way 
that the market will embrace, uh, speak their language, basically, literally and figuratively. Um, should there be uh, more diverse uh, front office staff than uh, three white young adult males? Yeah, and, and they, they are, uh, but it doesn't mean that you're unable to be successful uh, if you don't exactly mirror the, the community. And uh, well, you know, someone who's both of my parents are born and raised in Queens and I've spent a lot of time there. The other challenge they have is that that will be a changing demographic for them if they're around for a, any sort of prolonged period of time. I mean, there's, you know, the, there's a long pattern of migration into certain parts of Manhattan and then out to Queens and Brooklyn and then out to Long Island. And you see these kind of, these kind of rolling changes. My mom grew up in a very Italian uh, Irish area that then became Korean and now is predominantly Chinese um, and will probably be something else in another generation. Transients. You talk about transiency. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's historically been a real challenge for sports teams in the South where uh, in the Sunbelt cities, the fan base has come from the Northeast uh, or the upper Midwest. And so they didn't grow up uh, as fans of the Florida Marlins or the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Uh, they, they, they started somewhere else. They were Mets fans or, or Indians fans or, or, or whatever. And, and it's hard to get them to change once they already have instilled in their heart the team that they, they, they live for. Um, and in Queens, the good news is you have 2 million people, most of whom are, are passionate about soccer. You know, the bad news is they're passionate about a soccer team that isn't Queensboro FC. Uh, so they have a steep curve in that regard, uh, but it's able to be overcome um, by making the locals feel that this team is representing them. But to your point, Dan, if, if they turn over within five years, then you need to get a, a new fan base uh, to also feel similarly connected. Well, and this was not to go too deeply on just this one club, but I also think, you know, what Atlanta showed, right, is that a transient city where a lot of people moved there and a lot of those people didn't feel connected to the Falcons. They didn't feel connected to the Braves, but they were looking and much like I think what Peter and I, you know, we talked about with Ford Madison, this was a chance for people to rally around the city and around an area. And I think Queens is one of those places that doesn't have the cachet of a New York city of a Brooklyn or even the Bronx. Cause you got the Yankees. And I think, um, you know, now that I'm thinking about, it, I think they do have an opportunity to kind of plant a flag and, and, um, and there's some great soccer history there with BW Gachi and some other clubs. And um, hopefully they kind of tap into that local, that local feel for that club. Cause I think there are people that feel very passionately about living in Queens. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm very passionate about it. <laughs> As well, someone, we've, yeah, we, we've spent a lot of time I was talking conceived about there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I was just going to say that I think, you know, and this also is maybe just part of the, the overall Red Bull marketing model, but, you know, Harrison, New Jersey is right across the street from the, or the river from the Ironbound. And one of the endlessly frustrating things was we would go hang out at these, you know, Portuguese bars before the games and then march over to the stadium. 
And the Red Bull never seemed to think, oh, maybe we should bring in, you know, some Portuguese players to connect to this community that's right across, you know, the, the river and, and would, you know, you brought in, a, a, you know, instead of bringing Thierry Henry, who, God, I loved watching him, but maybe you bring in, you know, Figo instead and connect with that, that local community in some way, you know, you, you, you're adding something uh, and, and bringing something new to them you know, in a way that you might not by, by bringing in Thierry Henry. So I just think, you know, that's the other thing to consider. And I think the, the, you know, thing that Atlanta did tremendously well was connect with a community that nobody else had tried to connect with, right. The, the sort of the Southern, you know, hip hop community to start with, but also other groups. And then they were also helped by the fact that the Braves moved to some stadium that apparently is completely inaccessible by, <laughs> any sort of, you know, mode of transportation short of helicopter. Yeah, Atlanta's an interesting market in that I think it's changing from a transient market um, to, to more of a, a transitional market, meaning uh, they now have a critical mass of population that has grown up in Atlanta. Uh, maybe their parents transferred there for work uh, 30 years ago, but the 18 to 34 year olds now, for the most part, are people that have grown up in Atlanta and maybe they never connected with the Braves uh, or, or the Falcons or certainly the Hawks, uh, but they've been looking for a sports team to connect with. And uh, United has done it in, in, in a marvelous way that's gotten the whole community on board. Well, and they so, didn't always see a professional outdoor soccer team in Milwaukee in the next five years. Uh, what was the question? Will I? Will we Will see we? a professional outdoor soccer team in Milwaukee in the next five years? Oh, yes, of course. Okay. Will you, will you be part of that? I'll be a season ticket holder. Um, so I wrote this article eh, three years ago for the Howler about 10 criteria for a, a good um, professional soccer market. Uh, and analyzed all the markets in the United States that did not at that point have a professional soccer team. I analyzed them by population of a million plus, 750,000 to a million, and then under 750,000. At that time, Milwaukee was one of maybe uh, 19 markets, I think, of a million plus that did not have pro soccer. That was only three years ago. And in those three years, at least half the markets are off, off the boards now, meaning they now have professional soccer. Uh, so it's moving very rapidly. I just counted it up uh, this week. 33 of the 36 largest markets in the U.S. Uh, have a professional soccer team. I think Milwaukee, Cleveland, and Baltimore might be the only three that don't. Uh, between 36 and 150, it's like another 19 have professional soccer teams. So, you know, that's like 80 more markets that could, that are Madison size or larger, could uh, have a professional soccer team and don't. And I think that's where the real growth of the sport is going to come in the next 10 years. And that's what gives me... The, uh, all the confidence in the world that Milwaukee for sure will have a pro outdoor soccer team within five years. 
And that's also where, I mean, the USL has talked that they're going to be keep expanding rapidly and that, you know, we should look for up to five more USL League One teams in, in the next couple of years, um, you know, up to 15 more championship level teams, which seems a lot. But, uh, you know, what do I know? Um, and and I so the yeah. way around, no? I think it's, yeah, I think that's flip, Keith. Yeah. Oh, okay. Five more championship teams. Just proven, you know nothing, Keith. Well, yeah. Uh, I'm accepting that. Uh, I'm going to talk about a book that I'm reading that I don't remember the title of. And you guys, I actually had the right name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was great. It was great content, Dan. Uh, but you know, they're, they're talking about expanding for that reason. Um, it'll be interesting as well. Should this kind of USL Academy start taking off? I mean, once you get that, that sort of critical mass there, uh, as well in terms of a development option, then then the pressure arises on MLS and you have to start rethinking things. Anyhow, uh, anything else you want to talk <laughs> about today, Peter? Yes. So kind of going back to the map that Ford Madison put out about the states that have yet to buy a ticket for Match for Madison, it reminded me of the map Ford Madison put out when they were uh, quantifying how many states had bought merchandise uh, a year or so ago. And I think there was one final state that did not have um, uh, merchandise bought. And it was, do you recall? Idaho. It was Idaho. Exactly. And what did they do because Idaho didn't have the merchandise? Potato. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple <laughs> potatoes. <laughs> yes. And so that reminded me of a, a, a quick story. Have you heard of a minor <laughs> league baseball player in the 1980s named Dave Bresnahan? Can't say I do. No. Wasn't he, uh, wasn't he a leader of the Soviet Union? Different Bres, <laughs> Bres yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> so he was a catcher for the Williamsport Red Sox. I think. Oh, right. yeah, yeah. I remember him. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is also this is also the difference between you know peter could be completely making this up and we have no way of verifying this because this is so obscure whereas like we talk about things that people could conceivably maybe know they're on the edge so he could he can tell us all about dave bresniev we have no way of being like no actually peter was 15 and you know everything is fine so go ahead peter <laughs> if only there was a tool where we could look up information, but I think that's the bill, the annual Bill James Journal, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> journal or whatever it's called. Uh, I cannot, I can't get onto AOL anymore, Peter. So I don't know what this tool is. So Dave Bresnahan, not Brezhnev, Dave yeah. Bresnahan um, was playing in a kind of a meaningless game towards the end of the year. His team was out of. Uh, position for the playoffs and he decided to have a little bit of fun he peeled a potato and sculpted it into the shape of a baseball he hid it in his pocket and at the appropriate time of the game when the opposing team had a runner on third base the pitch was made he pulled the potato out of his pocket, threw it over the third baseman's head into left field, causing the runner on third to run to home plate when Bresnahan pulled out the actual ball 
and tagged him out. <laughs> Is that legal? No. Uh, <laughs> Bresnahan was kicked out of the game, fined, and released by the, uh, the parent club. I, I just want to point out that that is the most baseball of baseball stories. Some journeyman catcher with way too much time on his hands on some long bus ride between Paducah and wherever the hell he was going, carving, yes. carving a potato, coming up with some sort of weird sleight of hand <laughs> that can only be used once. That is the most baseball thing I think I've ever heard in my life. What my favorite detail is, about this is even baseball players are bored during baseball games. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. So he was not shown much love by, I think it was actually the Cleveland Indians that owned his contract because they released him. But um, the, the fans of, of uh, Williamsport uh, praised him. Uh, he actually became a bit of an icon. He did the circuit, went on Letterman. Uh, and the next year, he was out of baseball, but they retired his jersey with the Williamsport team, <laughs> and they had a sold-out crowd to honor him. I think you need to tell Connor and Vern this. I think this needs to be a Mallard's, uh, um, Madison Mallard's day at the stadium. <laughs> I think so. I don't think we can pull off the same trick in soccer. <laughs> uh, I would, however, I buy a things carved, <laughs> carved potato soccer ball. Well, it brings me to the question, what state do you think will be the final state to buy a match for Madison ticket? Yeah, because Idaho's off the board. Yep. Delaware. Uh, I'm going to get Delaware. I'm going to take like Montana. That's available. I'm taking North Dakota. Uh, well, you have a secret hate of North Dakota. You know, you talk <laughs> about how difficult, secret. <laughs> <laughs> how difficult it was to get to last time, you know. Just one problem after another. They didn't have a good pickled egg at a bar I went to in Fargo. <laughs> Which uh, we sell. You can pick up. Can you pick up pickled eggs at the Highbury as part of the takeout <laughs> of, of, of booze? Uh, I'm going to find out tomorrow. I'm going to stop by and see our friend Joe Katz and, and buy some schlapsed ingredients and a pickled egg for you, Keith. Thank you. Uh, and send me a picture of you eating it, and we'll put that on. Uh, we we want to say, Peter, thank you for welcoming us back, by the way, from our sojourn in the uh, Trappist Monastery outside of Salzburg. Uh, you know, we're, we're, it's great to be back chatting with you. Uh, we we need to thank talk the other Keith and Dan that, yeah. we, We're going to leave that for next time. We'll have to talk about signings. Yeah, we'll have to talk about signings, new signings next time. I do want to thank the other Keith and Dan for filling in for us so well last week. I think they did a pretty good job. Uh, not as good as us, but you know, what, what can you do? Um, so want to thank you all for listening. Uh, we don't have an official FC Belvedere Oasis sign off yet. So, uh, I guess I'll just say until next time, keep on trucking. I drive so much it is like my ass is my penis. Watch out for the front flying shrapnel from the uh, <laughs> car plant. Ron Greenfield, rest in peace. <laughs>